Let me welcome you again to Church of the City. My name is Russell. I'm a teaching pastor here um, and grateful to be alongside of you um, as, as people doing our best to follow Jesus well in the city of Portland. Um, before we get to our time around the scriptures, I want to take a moment and talk about community. Uh, we use that word a lot. We, we put a lot of emphasis on it here, and we have a lot of ideas surrounding what it means to be a community. Um, fundamentally, if you don't know who we are, what we are, what's happening right now, what you've stumbled upon is a community of people wrapped up around Jesus of Nazareth. Now, that's the simple version. The reality of it is we are broken people. We are messy people. And we are on a search, on a journey for something hopeful, for something good, for something redemptive, for something whole, complete. And, and acknowledging that is essential for who we are. But here's, here's a feature of our community that we don't focus on a lot. Week to week, we, we name off, oftentimes the good of being that kind of community, of being the kind of community that's looking for hope and finding hope. But there's a part of this that's, um, that's riddled with challenges. And it's that word community in and of itself. Community is hard. It's challenging. It's not perfect. It's not the way it's supposed to be in the way humans are supposed to relate. We live in a part of human history when things are just a bit less functional than we would hope for them to be. Again, that's why we're looking for hope. About this time a year ago, Church of the City began looking at and trying our best to, um, to see what was next, what we needed next as a church for the leadership at Church of the City. And one of the individuals that we identified among our church community um, is a guy that a lot of you know, uh, Ian Nelson, as one of our pastoral associates. And as we, as we started walking down that road, just trying to examine what was best, what God was up to, we went in with a lot of confidence that, um, that this would be a really good fit, um, that we had identified someone that would work well with our leadership, that someone who would, um, that we could put a lot of weight on with his character and his qualities and abilities and over the course of about 10 months, um, what, we've, what we've come to um, is that it wasn't as good of a fit as we hoped. Um, and that's a real challenge. Uh, last week, um, our pastoral team made the tragically difficult decision um, to release Ian from his pastoral responsibilities at Church of the City. Um, and there's, there's just nothing easy about any of that. It's not easy for, for you to hear it's not easy for me to say, but most importantly, um, this has been a, a, a life-giving experience um, for Ian over the last 10 months and a real challenge at a point where, um, where we're coming to a place to end this particular role. And here's the reason why I'm sharing that with you this morning, is because many of us have been part of a lot of communities and a lot of churches where these kind of things slide on the wayside next to what's happening in the life of a church community. We don't talk about it, uh, we don't explain it, we don't explore it, we don't get to walk down the road together with what's happening. But more important than that, even more important than what you might be going through emotionally right now, is that we are a community of people. And this is key, I think, for, for you to hear. That Ian and his fiancée, Amanda, um, they view you as their community. And they have committed and they intend to be a part of this community ongoingly. And that's going to be not with, and it's not going to be without challenges, it's not going to be um, necessarily easy, but here's the beauty of it. 
the reason we're bringing you along on this journey is because we need one another. If we're going to follow Jesus well as a group of people who are broken, who are looking for hope, then we need to be able to walk alongside each other when pain is real, when things are challenging, and when we need one another. See, we at Church of the City, we've actually never hired someone from outside of Church of the City. Not that we won't. I mean, there, there is a beauty to be able to hire someone from Florida, and then if it doesn't work out, you can send them back to Florida. <laughs> it's a real challenge when you love somebody. It's a real challenge when you care about people. It's a real challenge when you're invested deeply alongside of other humans in life, and a small part of it, a role, changes. And so essentially, here's my ask for you. Is it you, as you process your own understanding, maybe some of you this isn't affecting because you don't know Ian well, you don't, maybe you're not really acquainted well, well with our church, and that's okay. But many of you, um, you love the people of this community. You're here because of that. And many of you love Ian and Amanda, and you've loved them really, really well. Many of you love the leaders at Church of the City. And my, my request, my ask for you, is, is to continue on. Continue on doing exactly that. Loving really, really well as we navigate what it means to be a real community of real people who are really broken and who are really looking for hope. One of the things I want to clarify up front in front of you today, and I'll say it as many times as you need to hear it from me, is on Ian's part, there was no moral failure. There was no um, character flaw that prohibited him from being um, a person in leadership. That essentially the fit and the qualities just weren't, weren't a good match. If you want to have a conversation about that with myself or anyone else on our leadership team, we're a thousand percent open. I would love to buy you a cup of coffee. I'd love to talk with you. Um, Ian has expressed that he's interested in having conversations. And if you want to talk with him, if you're close with him, please do. Um, Please be honest and open and just continue the conversation as we go forward. One of the things that um, has struck me about this church um, since its inception has been how ridiculously relentless this community has been as we wrap ourselves around the gospel. And the gospel fundamentally means good news, challenging to hear difficult news. And so one of the questions becomes, how in the world does something good emerge out of this? One of the things that, that God spoke to Abraham early on as he was making a covenant with Abraham is God told Abraham everything that he was going to do for Abraham. But what he asked of Abraham was, Abraham, would you be a blessing? And the question becomes, how can we be a blessing in this kind of moment? So I've asked Sarah, uh, my executive associate partner in ministry, to come and speak a blessing over our church uh, this morning as we, as we navigate um, the changes happening in our church leadership, but also just as we experience this in this moment. And to clarify, the blessing doesn't take the hurt or the hardship away from the situation. We don't pray over something and it just magically goes away. This is to unite us as a community. It is to feel the feelings that we're feeling, um, to, to acknowledge that this is difficult and that we need each other in this transition, in this change. Um, so I am specifically praying this blessing over Ian and Amanda. I am specifically praying it over Russell, myself, and the leadership of our church, and specifically over each one of you, that this is something that these words you would take to heart and that you would feel some comfort and peace in a very difficult 
um, and maybe awkward and hard transition. Um, but this is, this is why we are a community and why we come together and love each other perfectly imperfect. May today there be peace within. May you trust God that you are exactly where you are meant to be. May you not forget the infinite possibilities that are born of faith. May you use those gifts that you have received and pass on the love that has been given to you. May you be content in knowing that you are a child of God. Let this presence settle into your bones and allow your soul the freedom to sing, to dance, to praise, and to love. It is there for each one of us. Amen. Thank you for each of you being a part of this church community. And very specifically, thank you, Ian, for being a part of our church community. We are a church that is wrapped up around Jesus of Nazareth, um, purposefully, with intention, and with anticipation, with hope of what's to come. One of the things we do, one of the things we practice as a church, um, is a centering kind of prayer. Um, I know we just spent a moment where Sarah blessed, but I want to spend a moment as we move towards the scriptures in silence together. As a practice, um, we as a church, we don't do it every week, but we do it quite often, where we just simply spend 60 seconds with one, with one another, with Jesus, letting our souls do what our soul will do. If our soul needs to speak, it speaks. If it needs to be quiet, it's quiet. But our intent is to orient ourselves again to Jesus. And so that's what we're going to do. Uh, the room is not quiet. Our children upstairs are not quiet. The city is not quiet. However, we are going to silence ourselves for a moment. So if you would, just pray with me for 60 seconds as we center ourselves around Jesus. God, that line from the song we just sang a few minutes ago is circling around my head and my heart and my soul. That you have loved us like death in reverse. God, may that be true in these moments. May it be true in each of our lives individually and true of the life of this community of faith as we follow you well. God, it's not incumbent upon us. Uh, it's not within our power to reverse death and reverse pain and reverse loss and reverse sin. It is only uh, 
only within your reach. And so today we look again to you for that, for that hope, that restoration, for the kind of reversal of the pain that we experience every single day and an incoming fresh breath of hope and joy and love and an abiding satisfaction knowing that we rest well in you. We love you, Jesus, and pray in your name. Amen. So I thought about uh, where to go uh, for us as a community of faith um, around the scriptures. It's always a, a difficult uh, question about what we should do, where we should go. Um, it wasn't especially difficult this go around. Um, usually I take it pretty seriously. Um, I take it to heart, you know, considering what should we read next, and listening to other people's suggestions, trying to take a temperature of where we are spiritually or relationally or emotionally or whatever. And then try to fill that in. And we're committed to the scriptures. We're committed to taking journeys through sections of the Bible as we try to understand what God's up to and who we are. Um, and and what, what I've chosen to do is st- start a, a 12-year sermon series. And I am not joking about that. What I've, what I've decided to do for us is to, um, to take the Psalms. If you know anything about the Psalms, we'll explain a bit more about what they are in a few moments, but there's, there's 150 of these units of Scripture called the Psalms. And it's this writing section in the middle of the Old Testament. In fact, it's, it's smack dab in the middle of your Bible if you have a paperback Bible, which very few of you do um, anymore. But if you had one and you open it right in the middle, you're going to land in the Psalms most likely. It's this monolith of text. And if you've ever spent any time reading any of it, you understand there's some richness and rich quality to the Psalms that we, we don't see really anywhere else in Scripture. It has a unique kind of angle to it. My wife, Emily, um, asked me why I picked the Psalms this week. And she's like, you know, have you been thinking about it for a long time? Is something you're, you know, is something, whatever. And I'm like, no, I just wanted to do it. Genuinely, I just wanted to spend some time in the Psalms. But it's a really difficult thing to do when it's so vast and so big. So here's what I'm proposing for us um, as we build a relationship with, with the writings of the Old Testament, particularly these Psalms, is um, we're going to be in the Psalms for the next 10 weeks. Um, so 10, um, the first 10 Psalms we're going to address. And then we're going to take a break from them. We're going to do something else in the scriptures. But over the next 10 to 12 years, if you hang out with us, um, we're going to make it through the whole book of Psalms. Um, and just, just setting a trajectory for us long term that we need to regularly visit with the storyline of the people who are dealing with what it means to be human in front of God, which essentially is what's going on in the storyline of the Psalms. And this is, this is why I entitled it the way I did, that what we have in the Psalms is a voice from a group of people that we, we regularly don't acknowledge are actually there. I mean, we read things, like we read the Bible, right? We open it up and read a few things, and we're looking for things like a life verse or a bit of wisdom or maybe some understanding or knowledge because it's more of a textbook to us. But we fail to really wrap our, our arms around is there are other humans who have lived on this planet for thousands of years way before we showed up. That we showed up in the middle of it all, and, and we, because we have this moment right now, assume that we have some kind of superiority to it, that we, we understand the world better than other people do, that we're dealing with it in a different way or a novel way or even just fundamentally a better way than anyone ever has. And the truth of that couldn't be farther from that belief. The truth is, is that people have been people for generation after generation dealing with the same kinds of experiences that we've dealt with for a long time. I was sitting in, um, I think, my second year 
of Greek um, in my undergrad studies. And I had this professor, Mr. Cornett, Dale Cornett, um, who is one of those people you look at and you realize he will forget more in life than I will ever know in life. He, he's genius level, like to the, to the extent of like being able to open up the Greek New Testament and just sight read to you what's going on, right? And just tell you like this word means that and that word means this and here's what they put together. They might mean this, but if you read this other author outside of the Bible, they would maybe use it a different way. Just genius level, right? Every single class period I had with him, he would start um, our time together with, with a small just nugget of truth, just a small one Thing. And it wasn't even like a full-blown devotional or anything. It was like a line. And I, I began writing them down because you realize like you're just getting gold from this, this human who's just been around the block for a long time. And he's, he just knows a lot. And he thinks a lot. And he is, he's pretty wise. And a few of those lines have stuck in my brain. I, I mean, I go back and revisit my notes and read a lot of them. But, but a, a few of them have stuck in my brain to the point that they've filtered into my soul. And one of the things that Dale Cornette said one class period, is he said, dig your wells deep now, for you'll be drawing from them for the rest of your life. Dig your wells deep now, for you'll be drawing from them for the rest of your life. Essentially, what he was saying is, don't miss this moment and this opportunity to go deep. Don't miss this moment to dig a well that will be a source of whatever you need tomorrow and the day after and the day after that. And at the time, I thought, that sounds really great. I'm going to use that in a sermon someday. I've never used it in a sermon until today. But more importantly than the belief that I could use some trite, simple cliche about the way the world is, that idea has been, has been doing its work on me personally for some time. And it is exactly what's going on here in the psalm exactly what's going on specifically in the very first psalm that we're going to look at today. That what we have is we have this opportunity to get a glimpse into the heart and the mind and the soul of people, real people, honest people, who are reflecting their experiences openly and honestly. Now, there's a lot to be said about the psalms that I think you need to know going into this. We're going to filter this through as we go down the road together, but here's a few pieces you need to know. First of all, the Psalms, um, they're old, okay? I mean, we're talking 3,000 years old. I mean, th- these are ancient by every dimension. But beyond that, beyond just being old, they, they're not English. They're Hebrew. And Hebrew thinkers are very different than modern-day um, people, uh, where we think post-enlightenment in straight lines, typically, um, in our culture. That's not true in, in the Hebrew mind. It's particularly the ancient Hebrew mind. The ancient Hebrew mind people thought more in circles. And the movement of normal conversation would be in a circle where you'd have the same thing come around several times. That fundamentally is a problem for us as linear human beings. We view um, progress as going to the next thing and not having to revisit the things we've already done. That's not true of the Psalms. It's not true of Hebrews. And here's the last bit I want you to hold on to today. This is poetry. Now, I don't know if you're like me or or not, but when I hear the word poetry, I literally get vomit in the back of my throat. I just do. I, I, it's not a genre of literature that's out there that I think, man, I can't wait to go read some more poetry. I mean, I, can't, I cannot tell you the last time I actually purchased a book that had poetry in it on, on purpose. 
Um, I do every now and then buy a book that the beginning like stands as poetry of every chapter, and that annoys me. The challenge is this with poetry. It doesn't work the same way as other kinds of literature. It just doesn't. Its function is so different. And one of the reasons I don't like poetry is because it, it, I have to slow down. I have to really spend time with it to try to understand what's happening in these, these words because they're, they're not as direct as other parts of the scriptures or other parts of literature that we have. Take, for instance, we spent over a year in the storyline of Jesus as told by a very close friend of Jesus, a guy by the name of John. It's story. You know what happens in stories? There's a beginning, a middle, and an end, and you move on to the next story. That, that just doesn't work in poetry the same way. I mean, when someone has a line and they say something in a storyline, then you can wrestle with what does that mean? What does it mean when Jesus says what he says? This, this is just functionally different. And we have to appreciate that as we come towards the Psalms. That their function is very different than a letter in the New Testament written from one person to a church or another individual. It's very different than an apocalypse literature that's telling us how things are broken in our world and here's a culmination of that brokenness. It's very different than the prophets who are writing to try to, to, to stir on or, or, or motivate the, the, the Hebrew people as they try to follow God. It's very different than the law that's very linear and point-based. It's very different than these narrative sections, very different than the origin story called Genesis. This is, in and of itself, a very unique concept inside of the scriptures, that we have poetry. And here's, here's what I think you need to know as far as that concept, it being poetry. That as we approach it, you are free to use all of your interpretive skills to understand it. It's much more challenging for me to tell you here is what it means exactly because poetry is intended to be interacted with by the individual, by you and by me, by our stories, by who we are, by what we are. And so as you approach this, as we approach this together as a community of faith, I'm going to struggle. I don't know if you know this about me, but I really enjoy like concrete thoughts, ideas, intellectual things. I like teaching. And the Psalms, they, they just don't really lend themselves to that as much as they do experience. So here's what I'd like from you, from, from us, is as we take these next 10 weeks, is I would like us to try our absolute best to try to experience these pieces of literature for what they are, to try to let them get into our soul in a way that maybe, if you're like me, you're, you're resistant to, or maybe if you're opposite or just a little bit different than me, you're open to. But at the very least, as we deal with who we are as humans, as we wrestle with our actual storylines actually happening in our life and what's happening in the life of our church, I'm going to ask you to experience these pieces of scripture. So to do that, I'm going to do something we don't do very often. Um, I'm going to ask you to stand up with me while we read this psalm together. So would you do that? Would you please stand with me? This is how the psalms begin. And, and you'll see some notes here we'll get to in a few moments about this being book one. Um, if you have a text open, if you're not just following on the screen, um, I'll explain that uh, in a couple weeks about what's going on here. But let me just read this to you. And my, my again, my emphasis to you is just let it, let it hit you for the first time. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked, or stand in the way that sinners take, or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and who meditates on his law day and night. 
That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. Not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. Go ahead and have a seat. The change in posture that you just undertook is a trigger inside of our brains as humans that helps us, again, grab onto what's going on around us. And it's that exact mechanism that this particular psalm begins to use. At the beginning of the book, at the beginning of all the psalms, this one is placed here intentionally to try to elicit exact, that exact kind of response that, that you just had. And it does it in this kind of word picture. It starts with this line, blessed is the one. Now, that line in of itself, that concept, is something that ought to be a trigger to any human being who's approaching God, who's approaching the scriptures. But fundamentally, what we're looking for is we're looking for something better than the world we're experiencing. We're looking for something more whole, more complete, something put together a bit better than what we've accomplished. And as we look towards God for that, this first line is drawing us into that reality, that there is something good, there is something blessed if, and then the big question is, if what? Blessed is which one? Blessed is who? And can I find myself as a human being inside of that goodness? Do I want to find myself inside of that goodness? And it's interesting that the author here of this very first psalm doesn't start with blessed is the one who does these great things. He says, blessed is the one who doesn't. Blessed is the one who doesn't. Now, there's a lot of people who have talked about this. Maybe you're familiar with this, but there's, there's progression here, right? There's this progression of walking and standing and sitting going on in this part of, of the text. Blessed is the one who doesn't walk and stand and sit among people who are fundamentally opposed to God. I was thinking on it this week. I think this is a picture of grinding to a halt. This is the picture of, of just the most obvious kind of statement Blessed is a human being who doesn't grind to a halt. I don't know if you've ever mountain biked before. But mountain biking um, is, is two parts. Um, there's a part that everybody loves to watch on YouTube, and that's the downhill part of mountain biking. And there's the part that is um, the opposite of that. It's the uphill part. Um, the uphill part of mountain biking, um, there are several groups and classes of people on the uphill part. The majority of us, we're in the group that just says, I hate it, can't stand it, don't want to do it. If I can get away from it, I will. Maybe I'll take a chairlift up a ski resort so I can just go downhill or bum a ride off someone to get to um, the point where I want to jump on my mountain bike. Now, I, for about a decade, uh, mountain biked in Boise, Idaho. And the, and the way Boise is situated is the city is right up next to the foothills of the Rockies. And so there's mountain bike trail access right at the edge of town. So my wife and I, we bought a house about five blocks from trailhead on purpose. Um, and we love the house, we love the location, but I was thinking, man, I can get off work, I can jump on my bike, I can go jump on trail, um, pound away for an hour, and come back home, be home for dinner. Like, amazing, right? Um, now, to do that, I mean, when you're at the, the valley floor level, every single time you, you get your mountain bike off the rack on the wall, and you put it on the ground, and you put your feet on the pedals, and you start moving, 
you're aware that that might be the day that it doesn't actually happen for you. And this, this is, happens a lot. I mean, you get on your bike and you do this all the time, different kinds of exercising or whatever. You get part of the way there and you're like, nah, forget it. I'm done. I don't, I don't really want to do this anymore. Um, and that would happen sometimes. But I'm, I'm in a weird class of mountain bikers that I actually like the uphill more than the downhill. Um, among the group of people I was in, uh, we were called the Billy Goats. We were the ones who um, would do our absolute best to make you feel miserable going uphill because we'd try to keep you with us. Um, as we went uphill, and then if you vomited, we won. Um, so that's typically the game you're playing as a billy goat. And, and what you're looking for with the person that you're going with, if you're the billy goat and they're not, um, is, is you're looking for them to get to the spot where their pedal won't go one more rotation over, where they just grind to a halt and can't go further. No, no, it sounds sadistic, I get it. I was younger then, and it wasn't my best you know, example of who I was as a human being. Nonetheless, the illustration still works really, really well. Um, this one time, I was, I was mountain biking with a guy named Brian. And Brian and I mountain biked for years together, and then he took like a year off, um, and I'd kept cycling, and then he wanted to get back into it. And so, um, and he and I both, like, we're good cyclers uphill, we can keep together, no problem. And we decided to go at this like 6.30 in the morning ride, before it gets hot, before classes. We jump on our bikes, and we, we take off up this trail. And it's, it was a, a pretty short trail all in all, just a couple miles long, um, but it was aggressive uphill and aggressive downhill. So we get done before class start. And um, Brian had elected to go behind me, uh, which was fine. So we just go, and we have standing rules. If you want, you can drop off the back and rest if you need to. So I keep going up to the top, and, uh, and Brian wasn't behind me anymore. And I kind of got the sense he'd fallen off behind me, no big deal. But I'm waiting around, waiting around, waiting around, and Brian doesn't show up. And so um, as, I, as I'm sitting at the top, my, you know, all those thoughts go through your brain, like, oh, that was, you know, yeah, he's going slow, whatever. You feel good about yourself. You kind of want to laugh at your friend. And then it switches to fear. You're like, oh, man, he might have fallen. Um, or worse, like, there's cougars up here. Um, there's, you know, there's all sorts of crazy things. Maybe he turned around, went to the bottom again. I don't know. So I decided after about 15 minutes to flip around, go back down the trail to find him. As I, as, I, as I just start down the trail again, around the corner comes Brian, just plugging away. We get to the top, um, and we're hanging out, talking. No big deal. He, he says, you want to go downhill? Yeah, I'd love to go downhill. So we go downhill. And uh, we get to a spot um, in the trail where a large pile of vomit is sitting. And, and I, I look over my shoulder at Brian, and I slow down just as we approach it, because I know what's going on. I know, I know what happened. Um, and I slow down, and I'm like, yeah, I just need to catch my breath real quick. And he comes up next to me, and he looks over at me, and he smiles, and he's like, I have never, ever popped on a ride. That's what we call it when you throw up you someone pops. I've never, ever thrown up on a ride. And uh, I was like, yeah, but why, why did you take so long? What happened? And he's like, well, it didn't start with throwing up. It started with me getting off my bike and laying down on the trail to try to get the world stop spinning. And, and, as, he, and as he explained what had happened to him, is in his mind, he was still the person who could go the whole distance, who could get to the top of the trail. But his body was telling him, there is no way on earth I will take you there. You must lay down right now. You must actually place your body flat on its back in the middle of the Boise front and lay down. And if no cyclist comes and runs you over, that's on you. But you brought me here, and this is the end. For Brian, that picture of laying on the ground and then just throwing up is exactly what's going on in my mind at the beginning of the Psalms. Blessed is the one that that doesn't happen to. Blessed is the one that doesn't grind to a halt and just stops in life. Now, there's qualifiers here. There's qualifiers in this piece of poetic text. And the qualifiers that this author gives us is, blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked, 
or stand in the way of sinners, or, ta- or, or sit in the company of mockers. What fundamentally the author is saying is, you know what's good and bad in the world, and blessed are you if you don't grind to a halt among people who are far from God and believe they know what's best in the world. But then he inverses it. Blessed if you're not that person, but blessed if you are, verse 2, the person whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on it day and night. Now this line right here, this is the point of this, of this piece of poetry. If you're not fluent in dealing with poetry, if you're not fluent in dealing with, with Hebrew poetry, let me just tell you, this is the point of what this author is saying. There's reasons for it in Hebrew structure. I'm not going to give you a Hebrew lesson today, but in, in the way this is structured, this is the central idea. The blessed is the one whose delight, whose joy, whose satisfaction is in the voice and the mouth of God. Now the phrase he uses here, the law of the Lord. The law of the Lord is a very specific kind of piece of language. Now just go back in your mind a little bit to the days of Jesus. Because kind of we reference things in the Bible. Go back to the days of Jesus, right? And Jesus is quoting scripture a lot, right? Well, he's not quoting your Bible. I hope you know that. When Jesus is quoting scripture, he's not quoting the book of John because he's living the book of John. So it's impossible for him to quote the New Testament. So all of our New Testament, where you spend all of your time, where I spend all of my time typically as modern-day Christian people, um, that's not his scripture. The scripture of Jesus is the Old Testament, is what we're in right now, the, the, the two-thirds chunk of the Bible that is is real challenging for us as American readers and American Christians to get invested in, in many cases. This part of the scriptures has three sections to it. The law, the writings, and the prophets. Psalms is part of the writings section. The law is the first five books. uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And it's exactly what it sounds like. It is the place where we have 513 laws given from God to his people, and here's how to function. It's a story around it. It's the covenantal relationship. It's all of that. The writings is this middle section. We have some story form going on. We see the development of Israel, and we see the writings of, of some of the people, some of the wisdom literature coming out, like we have in the Psalms. And the prophets is what it sounds like as well, the section where we have um, the, the voice of the humans who are speaking on behalf of God to Israel about what God wants them to hear. Now, the shorthand for those three sections, you put them together is also called the law. In fact, um, if you just think about it, that makes sense. We, we do that all the time. We have shorthand for all kinds of things. So it's not being so specific in the text to say, blessed is a person who, who memorizes all of Torah. Blessed is a person who memorizes all of the book of Deuteronomy. Blessed is a person who knows what's going on with Moses and the covenantal relationship between God and Israel. Those things are part of it, but it's bigger than that. Blessed is the person who's committed to the whole of God's voice into the human story. Blessed is a person whose delight is found there. Now, this is the point of contrast, and this whole psalm is contrastive. This is the point of contrast. Blessed is the one who grinds to a halt in the company of people who believe they can do it themselves. Versus, blessed is the person who is sourcing their life and their life's material from God himself. Can you see that contrast? Can you see how those are different? 
See, fundamentally what's going on here is a question of where are you getting your wisdom? What is the source for you when it comes to life, when it comes to thinking, when it comes to acting, when it comes to your relationships? What is the source material for wisdom? Blessed is the one whose delight is in the voice of God. Blessed is the one whose delight is in the law of the Lord. Blessed is the one who does not grind to a halt among the sinners and the people who are estranged from God and the people who are shaking their fists at God, believing they know better about what to do next. You see, this is a very um, confrontive kind of piece of poetry. Essentially, what's being asked and what's being pointed out is every single person on earth is making decisions. And you are sourcing the material for those decisions from somewhere, from somebody, from something. And what this author is saying is the person who is blessed, the person who is truly wise, is the one who finds their wisdom from God, who meditates on his voice, on his words, on his scriptures, night and day. This is the poetic beginning of the Psalms. But then he goes on. He says, that person is like a tree planted by water. Now, I, I found this picture this week for, um, for the series, and I'm pretty proud of it, by the way. Sometimes you geek out on things that don't matter in life, and this is one of those. But when I saw it, um, what I saw were the roots. I don't know if you can see that in the picture behind me. But the way the roots are gnarled on a beach that most likely is rock-bound, and it's the reason why those roots are doing what they're doing. They're searching for water. But this tree is a blessed tree as far as trees go. Now, I know something about blessed trees because I grew up in the desert. I don't know if you've ever been to a desert before, but there are no blessed trees in the desert. Just part of it. We have scrub brush and juniper trees. Um, and juniper trees, if you've ever been around them, are the scratchiest, nastiest, dirtiest trees that God allowed to live on earth. I'm not going to say he created them because I think they're allowed. Maybe they're part of the fall. I don't really know. <laughs> but what's, what's true of the desert is that it's, it's full of all these plants that are fighting for water, looking for it, trying to get it. My wife, Emily, she grew up um, here in the Portland metro. And I remember as a kid driving over to the west side of the, the Cascade Mountains and coming through the place like Portland or Seattle or, or Vancouver, BC, and just like actually getting a little bit panicky about not being able to see more than like 30 feet in front of me because the trees are so dense. I mean, I grew up in a huge basin desert where you can see for tens of miles. And to be places like here, where if you, I mean, you can be in Beaverton and then all of a sudden you can be in the Himalayas and you wouldn't know because you drop you know, down one canyon road and you're in the middle of a desert or middle of a, a forest where everything is so dense, you're confident that if you stop right now, you would die. No one would come find you. You're so remote. It's, it's just mind boggling. And you think about it, like, just the simple concept of how blessed a tree is to have, find its seed and rooting on this side of the Cascade Mountains versus the side I grew up on. It's very different. Very different. And the, and the author here says, the person who meditates on God's words, who lets that become the source material for their life, is like that tree. The tree 
that is blessed by abundant water. It's even planted next to water that might be still or moving next to it where there'll never be a shortage. That is what this person is like. Now let me just give you the image contrast here. The first image is a person who grinds to a halt and has no, no other option but to stop their course of action in life because they have chosen their own path. Or the person who has chosen, I will plant myself and I will root myself next to God himself as the source for my life, as the source for my thinking, as a source for my relationships. And from this place, I will choose where I get all that I need for my life. This is a huge difference. This is a massive difference. Here's a fundamental similarity. Both of these images end with you being still, with you being stopped, with you ending up somewhere in life. One, you're choosing to cooperate with God and say, I choose this place. The other might be on a mountain trail in Boise, Idaho, laying in your own vomit when you can't go any further. And that's not a far comparison to the realities of what you've experienced in life and what I've experienced in life when I am the master of my own destiny and I am the source of my own wisdom. Where we end up suffocating under the weight of our own decisions because we think we know better than God knows on how we ought to live life. See, one of the things that's taboo to say in Portland, against the grain and against the rules, as if there were any rules in our city, is you can't say that anybody is not the master of their own destiny or that they shouldn't be the master of their own destiny. And fundamentally, the author of the Psalms is saying exactly that, that your best effort, your best wisdom, it's going to fail you. It's going to fall short. But there is another option. And you being here in this room at this moment, right now, with this group of people, is evidence of hope of that. I'm not saying that it's all ironed out today. I'm not saying that there's anything monumental here that you haven't heard before. But what I am saying is that, again, you're presented with the options of what you're doing with your life. Is your life rooted in the wisdom and voice of God? Or is it your best effort trying to make things work on your own? That's the compare and contrast of this. Now, the author ends it with this. And he says in the last second half of the second stanza and the end, not so the wicked. They are like chaff. The wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. Fundamentally, what the author here is saying is the end result of the accumulation of life's decisions on your own with your best effort is just going to blow away. You'll grind to a halt, and all those decisions, like chaff, will disappear. You know what chaff is, right? You've heard this before. Chaff is the leftover part of, of the stalks, of the heads of grain the part that nobody wants. The seeds are what we want. So we produce so we produce grain and make bread and that kind of thing out of. But the husky part, the part around it, all the stemmy part, that all gets ground off. And it's, it's intended this way. You build this place where you would want to, to separate the, the stock from the, from the grains in a windy place. 
and the wind would come along and it would take all that really light, airy pieces of the, of the, the piece of, um, of wheat or whatever you were grinding up and it would just move it along out of your way. And that's the comparison here. Your best efforts and the best efforts of the people around you who are far from God is like chaff. It might sound good. It might look good. It might be tempting. It might be something you want to do. You want to walk with them. You want to sit with them. You want to lay down with them. That all makes sense. But end of the day, the wisdom of God, what is being said here, is that that will blow away. That will not last. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. I think for us as a church community, this is a perfect beginning to the story that we're engaging on alongside of these humans. What I love about the Psalms is it isn't one story. It isn't accumulation of narrative pieces that come together for a grand narrative. The people who wrote these, the people who who poetically put their heart and soul out there for others to read, were experiencing real things. They They were real humans dealing with real pain, and real joy, with real suffering, and with real contentment. And as they wrestle with it, as they wrestle with who God is, one of them wrote this down. In light of their experience with God, along cooperating with the Holy Spirit to bring to us a perspective. That when all said and done, it isn't rocket science. This is a very simple piece of scripture to understand. The real challenge is not in understanding it. The real challenge is beginning to make it true of our lives. To begin to say, I will be looking more towards God and His guidance and His wisdom than towards my own experiences, my own intellect, my own feelings and emotions, the people around me who are not deeply attached to God Himself. To begin making shifts on where we go to look for advice, where we go to think, where we go to pray, where we go to meditate. And it comes down to something really simple, you guys. Something that we overlook a lot and we we fail to say as often as we ought to. And the author here says for us, Blessed is the one whose delight is in the law of the Lord, who meditates on it day and night. Let me just encourage you. Find the space in your world to delight in the words of God. Find the space in your world to read the scriptures, to wrestle with them, to let them do their work on you, to meditate on them. Find the space in your world without excuse to let it become the source material for who you are. Let me remind you, dig your wells deep now, for you will be drawing from them for the rest of your life. God, today, gosh, we are just grateful to even have access to your mind and to your heart and to your soul. You are such a blessing beyond words. Those words just feel so shallow and insignificant in light of who you are and what you are, but they're what we have. God, we want you to be our blessing to be our source, to be our guide, to be the voice of wisdom as we make decisions, as we follow, 
as we try to be humans committed to your ways and your teachings and your practices as you showed up on earth and put flesh and bones on and walked among us. God, help us, inspire us, teach us, shape us, help. We love you, Jesus, and pray in your name. Amen.